invite my friend Mark to read from our text this morning from Matthew chapter 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn, first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you'll see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped to his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers. Go to Galilee. There they will see me. The guards report. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went to the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while they were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, he will sa we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And the story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this day. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Quite regularly at several times a week would probably be most accurate. As my wife and I are doing our kind of like bedtime routine, brushing our teeth, getting ready for bed, we'll, we'll begin to have these conversations about you know, just the things that are going on in our lives. Um, work, kids, parenting, family, friends. We're talking about those things that are, are just great joys to us, but also those things that are concerns and fears and apprehensions and uncertainties. And oftentimes, as we fall into bed, kind of exhausted from our day, I'll turn out the light, and, and sort of the, the next thing that Catherine will say, and I got her permission to share this, by the way, she'll say, is it all going to be okay? That's a big question. And in one sense, it is the question. I mean, I, I meet with people, uh, you know, probably half a dozen people at least throughout each week, and they come to me, and they've got their concerns. Some of you will be talking about things that are going on in your family that are concerns to you, or, or maybe you're thinking about this work thing that's going on, and you're afraid maybe you're even going to lose your job. 
There's these struggles and these hopes and these dreams that I hear on a week-in and week-out basis. And at bottom, underneath of all of these, I, I feel like that same question is just whirring underneath of it. It's percolating there, and it's, and it's the question, is it all going to be okay? Now, many of you came this morning, or you're joining us online right now, and, and you have your own list of what-ifs, like what if this, or what if, what if that happens? And you have these hopes, and you have these fears, and they're, they're all rolled up together. Like just a few weeks ago, um, I was with, uh, with Ricky. We were actually on our way. We had a few things to do that day, and one of them was I was dropping off a Bible, for someone who's new to our church community here, new to the Christian faith, and she's in hospital. And so I said, yeah, I'd love to drop off a Bible, and I'm going to bring my friend Ricky with me, and we're going to, and, and we show up there, we walk into the hallways, uh, one of the floors, and, and I, I go to knock, and I see there's actually a healthcare professional in there with her at the time, and, and, and so I just kind of just wait, and they finish their conversation, and as the healthcare professional turns and walks out of the room, we just hear her burst into tears. And whatever has just been said has been life-altering. And I said, is now a good time? Or should I come back later? And she said, no, it's a perfect time. And so we walk into this room that is just heavy with uncertainty and with uh, reeling from from what might be, from some of these what-ifs. Because what she just heard sounded like it could be really, really bad news. The kind of bad news where is the worst kind of bad news, especially for a single mom of two young kids. And I walk into that room and she is looking me in the eye and asks me point blank, is it all going to be okay? With desperation as thick as the tears in her eyes. How do you, how do you begin to answer that question? And what would you even base your answer on? Maybe just personalize it for a moment. Like, how do you answer that question? Like, that's the space that cliches and platitudes, they just fall flat in those kinds of moments. When somebody who may be facing an early death looks you in the eye and says, is there any hope? What do you say? Well, what happens when it's your own family member? It's a loved one. Maybe it's you. Like, where do you go in that space, in the text from Matthew's gospel that we just heard today, this biography of Jesus' life, we hear what our hearts ultimately need. Because if this is true, if the Son of God really did rise to life again in a real resurrected body, in real history, then we have a hope that death itself cannot touch can't steal away. We have a hope that breaks the fear of death ultimately, and more than that, actually breaks the fear of life, the fear of stepping into what God has created you to be and to do so that you can live the life God has called you to. It breaks that too, and here's why. There's just three things I want us to look at today. Of many things we could, number one, hope has a history. Two, hope has a horizon, and three, hope has a name. I just want to invite you to pray with me as we begin. God, we come to you today with a whole load of things underneath the surface. Each person here carrying some of those fears and uncertainties. And yet we also come here today, Lord, because we want to hear your voice. We want to hear what you, the author of life, have to say about life. 
And so, God, we ask that you would give us hearts that are wide open, even for those who are here who are full of doubts. Maybe this just seems a little bit crazy. I want to ask, God, that you would speak to those hearts too. And we ask all of this, God, for your glory and our joy. Amen. So first, hope has a history. I, I recently listened to uh, just a, a, a portion of an interview with Ricky Gervais. Some of you will know him. He's a brilliant actor, comedian. He's the guy who created The Office, for goodness sakes. He's also uh, a very outspoken atheist. And, and I listened to this um, interview with, with really great interest because he was talking about his deep love for Jesus as a kid. Let me just quote to you a little bit from the interview. He says this, I love Jesus. He was my superhero. He really was. I thought he was brave and he was kind. I thought he was just amazing. So I was about eight and my brother must have been 19 and, and, and he came in and, and he said, what are you doing, Ricky? And, and I was reading something from the Bible. So I said, well, I was, I was doing Jesus. And he says, who's Jesus? He was like, well, he's, he's the son of God. And he says, why do you believe in God? And my mother looks over and, and, and she says, Bob, shut up. And I knew she had something to hide. And I knew that he was telling the truth. And I knew, and I knew from body language. And then I worked it out, and I was an atheist within an hour. Now, studies continue to show that most people really do have a favorable view of the person, the founder of Christianity, of Jesus himself. But that's a long way from accepting the claims and the history, the claims that Christians make that he is God the Son who was raised from the dead on the third day. That's a long way from saying that Jesus has any claim or relevance to your life. Like, did Jesus really die on a cross? Well, historians don't doubt that. But was it really part of his plan, or was it? I was reading a bunch of atheist blogs this week just to kind of prime the pump for my thinking. And, and one person, it was, it, was a, it was a beautiful article, actually, and he, and he argues that we actually, even atheists, should celebrate Easter to some extent because he looks at what Jesus has done. And, but then he says this. He said, this is just a really bad day for a really kind man. This is a tragedy and nothing more. So there's that question, like, is there, the real question boils down to, is there any actual evidence for the resurrection in history? And that is the real question. Uh, the Apostle Paul, one of the first people to spread the message of Christianity throughout the ancient world, he says, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, Christians actually deserve all the mockery you want to dish at us. Everything is based on the resurrection of Jesus. The whole, whole show, everything about Christianity rides on this day and this moment. Now, I, for one, think Gervais may have come to his conclusions a little bit prematurely. I'm not sure that you can realistically wrestle with the existence of God and work through all the arguments in an hour when you're eight years old. But, but, I think there's something in what he was saying, and maybe some of you wrestle as well. You just struggle to think, is this really something I can believe in? And so I want to talk about that. Like, is there some history? Well, let's start there. Just think of this first scene for a moment. Notice again, after these women encounter these heavenly messengers, they see the tomb itself, and the tomb is empty, and, and the heavenly messengers say, he's not here, he's risen from the dead. And then they are sent off to tell the disciples, so they go. And then there's this line, which I think is one of my favorites in the Gospel of Matthew. Afraid, 
yet filled with joy. It makes good sense. They are trembling afraid because almost every time you read in the Bible of someone encountering an angel, this heavenly messenger, they are terrified, rightly so. But they've still got this toe-tingling sense, like this is super weird, and yet it's wonderful too. Afraid yet filled with joy. I mean, they love Jesus. They saw their friend die. They saw his limp body laid in the tomb. And now they're hearing this news that's both shocking and overwhelmingly wonderful. And they're trying to process it like, could this, could this really be true? I mean, his tomb is empty. These messengers from God say he's alive, but they don't have to wonder for long. Jesus meets them, and in this text, it simply says that he, he says, greetings. I love that too. And I just want to invite you to try, try to just put yourself there for a moment. Just imagine that you were these women. Try to imagine it. It says they clasped his feet like they touched his resurrected body and gave him the kind of honor that God alone is, is due. They worship him, it says. And I love it because Matthew, the author of this book, he knew these women. He's one of those disciples whom, who heard them panting out of breath, tears of joy streaming down their faces. He heard them tell the news, still shaking with joy as they announce, he's alive. We saw him. We touched him. And see, Matthew not only includes the factual details, he, he talks about their emotional experience. This intermingling of afraid yet filled with joy all rolled up together. And he saw it written all over their glad faces. But we ask, why believe any of it? There's a number of reasons actually right here. Number one, Matthew, this male disciple, he records that women are the first witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. Women at that time, in that place, were not seen as credible witnesses. You couldn't trust them in court. And yet Matthew, this male disciple, feels bound to tell the truth about what happened that day. See, if they wanted to fabricate a story that people would believe in, you would never include women as the first witnesses. And yet he feels bound to tell the truth of what happened, even even if it makes the story less believable within his culture. Number two, the Christian claim that Jesus was alive could have easily been disproved. All you had to do was go and grab the body and be like, look, that's him. We all know it's him. But no body was recovered. There would be enormous pressure, both from the Roman side and the Jewish religious leaders, to find the body and just show everybody. But they can't find a body, and they don't find a body. Historians agree the tomb is empty. We, we don't have Jesus here. But why? That's the big question. Why is it empty? Well, number three, the women here and Jesus' remaining 11 disciples, it says they worshipped him, even though some of the disciples had reservations. They had their doubts too. Now, it might be hard for us to appreciate this, but to a Jewish person, there is one God and one God alone who deserves worship. And to worship anyone or anything else was blasphemous. It was the worst thing you could possibly do. And yet, right here in this text, it says that the, well, we, we'll read that the early church, it explodes in that area. Among Jewish people, the first people who were the church were all Jews. All the early disciples, these women, 
what could possibly lead them overnight to begin worshiping a flesh and blood human? I think only if they saw him raised from the dead. There's this catastrophic shift that would be unthinkable for Jews up until that point, unless, well, unless they saw Jesus raised from the dead and they touched him and then they believe all of the hints. As they look back over the Gospels, they say, oh, wow, he really is God in the flesh, God with us. It's also helpful to see that the disciples, some of them at least, are able to touch Jesus, see the holes in his hands and feet and sigh, and yet they still doubted. Some of them still doubted. I think that's really helpful because we might be tempted to think, oh, these guys are just gullible. These ancient people, they'll believe anything. No, they won't. They know that dead people don't rise again. They can touch him and some of them don't believe it or they're struggling with it. That's important that Matthew would include that detail for us as well. Resurrection was outside of their expectations. Nobody was expecting it. Look, it says the women went to the tomb to find what? To see if he was raised from the dead? No, just to go and check it out. They're there to grieve. They weren't expecting it. So if you have your doubts, you're in good company today. You stand there next to the disciples who are touching his body. And yet, we can't simply end with our doubts either. That's not actually thinking well. Being skeptical, being doubtful of everything isn't thinking well. Sure, it's a good place to start, but it's not a good place to end. It means you have to go and look at the evidence itself and try to account well for that evidence. A common objection will just say, well, resurrections don't happen, so Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. But here's my question. Why believe that? I mean, that's just based on an assumption that God doesn't exist because if God exists, there's at least the possibility of miracles. That's not an argument. That's just restating a belief. Theologian Wolfhart Pannenberg I think he's right. He says there are good and even superior reasons to claiming that the resurrection of Jesus was a historical event, and consequently, the Lord himself is a living reality. And then here's the fourth thing. Here's the kicker. All all of the disciples that we read about here faced intense persecution as they lived to tell this story. Most died because they doggedly maintained that they saw Jesus alive And they believe that everybody needs to come and place their trust in Jesus, to turn to him and trust. Some of them died by crucifixion, just like Jesus. Peter may be even upside down. Now, I don't know about you, but I would not willingly suffer like that to spread something I knew wasn't true. So what could possibly explain it historically? Now, if you don't rule out miracles just out of the gate, the best and most plausible explanation is that Jesus was truly raised from the dead. And the Bible, as the Bible says, hundreds of people saw him alive and they took that news and it spread throughout the known world. The question is then, how do we respond to that? How How do you respond today? First, this text shows us a few options. First, the women worship. The first male disciples worship. They fall on their faces and worship Jesus as God and King. Even with doubt still swirling in their minds, they stand up then after that with renewed vigor and they give their lives to follow him and announce the news that Jesus is king and God. This is not just moderate appreciation for the man. It wasn't just, hmm, you know what? He had some really great things to say. He was really kind. We should like emulate his kindness with our lives. That's not what they're doing here. 
they're in the dust, on the ground, clasping his feet. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a preacher from the last century, and he uses this illustration. He says this, imagine a friend tells you he's, he's paid a bill uh, for you. How should you respond? Well, you, you have no idea until you know the size of the bill. Until you know how much he paid, you don't know whether to shake his hand or fall down and kiss his feet. The reality is, and we saw this on Good Friday, this is what we celebrated that day, that Jesus has taken hell for us. That he has experienced true and utter darkness for a time so that we can live in God's light and love forever. He pays the debt I owe and that you owe. He paid it. For everything I've done wrong, he's paid it so that he is perfectly just and perfectly merciful at the same time. Let that reality fuel your worship, not just today, but throughout the whole of the next year. The religious leaders, on the other hand, they actively try and find ways to cover this up, to distort it, to spread false information. What about you? Well, here's the second thing. We respond with trust. The resurrected Jesus draws a line through history and says there is real hope for you. Hope resting on real history, but that line that's drawn calls us to step over it in trust. Step over it into life with Jesus at the center. Christian hope, then, is based on real history. What is stopping you from stepping into it today, from trusting Him today? Now, I, some of you might just still have some big questions. Maybe you're just stepping inside of this whole world for the first time or for the first time in a long time, and you've got big questions. Great, but don't stop there. Ask them. Connect with me or one of our pastors. Connect with the person that invited you today. We would love to help you dig into these questions because not only does hope have a history, it has a horizon. It tells us that history is going somewhere, and it's somewhere amazing. See, the arc, the whole arc of the biblical storyline begins with creation, with God making all that exists and creating the world in love and for love. And as we read, however, it says that human, the human propensity to mess things up, to live with self at center, has corrupted and distorted the whole thing. And you know it. It's like the one piece that you can just read the newspaper and the empirical evidence is all over the whole thing. You know the world's messed up, and you know that you're a part of that. And you have a hand in it too, and I do too. But now on this day, where Jesus defeats death, God's mission to make all things new, it has dawned. It's already begun. It's, it's what C.S. Lewis is getting at. When, when the presence of Aslan shows up in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, it's as Ricky pointed out, Aslan, if you're unfamiliar with this story, is really just Jesus in a lion suit. Um, and when Aslan shows up, the long winter that's never Christmas, well, it's finally Christmas. I actually love that Lewis wrote Father Christmas into it. It's like Father Christmas shows up, and he gives gifts to the kids, and then the big thing starts happening, is that the world that's frozen and dark and cold and, and always winter but never Christmas begins to melt. And the buds of spring begin to blossom, and the world begins to warm. Look again at what the text says. The very first line says, After the Sabbath, at dawn, 
on the first day of the week. That language is, is reflecting off of Genesis chapter 1. That's creation language. This horizon, this horizon has a promise. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus does promise He'll be raised again from the dead to be King and Lord of all, though the people had no categories for it. But He also makes another promise, and He says, that I'm going to come again, and this time I'm going to come in glory, and I'm doing it to make all things new, to judge the living and the dead. Our Creator will recreate this world as our eternal home without sin or death or decay. I like how Tim Keller says it. He puts it well, this pastor from from New York City. He says, Christianity says that when God comes back, He's going to renew and cleanse this earth. Bodies, loved ones, homes will be restored, purified, and beautified. It will be a life in which God's people hug and eat and dance. Resurrection is the restoration of life. Jesus' resurrection means resurrection for all those who believe in Him into this new heaven and new earth. Now, that makes my heart leap for joy for a lot of reasons, but maybe chief of them is, and like many of you will know this, but some of you won't, that my, I lost my dad in 2009 to cancer, my older brother Aaron in 2015, and my younger brother Jordan in, in 2020. As I've walked through that grief, it is this hope that holds me. I know that their story and our story together isn't over because of this day. It's like when Sam sees his friend Gandalf, Gandalf who had died, when he appears near the end of Tolkien's third story in his trilogy, he blurts out, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What has happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. Is everything sad going to come untrue? The resurrection of Jesus is God's final and definitive yes. Yes, it is. On this day, a great shadow has departed. That's why we're here. That's what we're celebrating. Death has been dealt the death blow. And it's this day, a real day in real history, that begins that process. And that horizon of hope, it means that we have real purpose. That means that we have a renewed task of bringing this message of hope and healing and justice to the world. We've been working through the book of Exodus uh, as a church community recently. And, and the major theme of this, of this book, of this event in Israel's history, is that God is revealing who God is. Now, near the beginning of the book, if you're familiar with it or if you're not, there's a guy named Moses. He's kind of one of the main characters in this story. And, and God calls him to come, and it's on a mountain, and that's important. We'll see in a minute. He, he comes to this burning bush, and he says, I've got a mission for you. I care about the people. I hear your people crying out in misery, and I want to send you to be a part of me freeing them. And he's confused. He's like, who are you? And he reveals his name. He says, my name is I Am. And then he gives a verbal form of it as well. I will be who I will be. Like, just watch what I'm going to do and you'll see who I am. But Moses is afraid. He's afraid of the task. He's afraid of Pharaoh. He's afraid of what his own people will think. 
But, it, but God keeps assuring him. He says, don't be afraid. Go. I will be with you. And I don't know if you noticed it, but at least three times in our text, we hear exactly the same thing. The heavenly messengers say to the women, don't be afraid. Go tell the disciples. Then Jesus meets the women and says, don't be afraid. Go tell the disciples. And then the disciples meet Jesus on the mountain, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Paraphrase, trust me. Paraphrase, I'm in charge of the whole thing. Paraphrase, therefore, don't be afraid. Go make disciples of all nations. So I want you and us as a church community here to afresh today, don't be afraid. Go. The promise is, Jesus says, I will be with you. So what does that look like for you? Well, don't be afraid of what your friends or coworkers will think of you if they find out that you follow Jesus. Don't be afraid that you will sound like a fool to them at times. Don't be afraid if you, well, if you have your own set of questions about God and, and you don't always feel that confident, don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of what will happen if someone says, I disagree. Don't be afraid that the gospel calls you to live distinct from the world, but for the sake of the world. So here again, the promise Because it's the presence of the living Jesus that changes everything. He says, surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Here's the thing. You are not guaranteed success in life. Jesus doesn't guarantee that for you. Plans will not always go to plan, but we are guaranteed God's own presence with us. And that's enough. And it's enough because of whom it is who goes with us. Who makes the promise? The last thing we need to see is that hope has a name. Because you might wonder, you say, okay, sure, I could believe the history if I dug into it. I can anticipate that horizon. That sounds great. But can I really trust him for the day to day? Can I really trust him? Now, mountain scenes are really important as you read through the Bible. If you see the whole story of the Bible, the places where God tends to tell us who God is are in mountain scenes. We, we, we saw it, Mount Hermon in Exodus chapter 3, that God reveals his name, I am, I will be who I will be to Moses. And then as we saw on Good Friday, Jesus goes up on a mountain on Golgotha, and there he is enthroned as king. That's his enthronement, folks. That cross is not just a defeat, that's saying this is what God is like. And that resonates back, as we heard on Friday, with Exodus 34 on another mountain, on Mount Sinai, where God says, the Lord, here's who I am, the Lord, the compassionate, the gracious. Jesus hanging on a cross, enthroned as king, pictures his graciousness, his love towards you like nothing else can. Again, Jesus never promises to make your life easier. If you follow him, it will probably be harder. He never promises that you won't face pain or loss or hurt. He doesn't make that promise ever. That's not the promise of Jesus. He does promise to be with you in it all. And that promise comes from the one who experienced the most extreme suffering. Yes, physical on the cross, but much more than that. 
He suffered spiritually for you. The weight of the world's sin and guilt were laid on him. And he did that for you. And the God who does that for me, I can trust him. I can trust one who would do that for me. And so can you. And here again in Matthew 28 is a mountain scene. It's important that Matthew mentions the mountain. Why? Because God is going to tell us more about who God is yet again. And he's going to tell us what it means to follow him yet again. See, he instructs these disciples to baptize. That means to dip people into water to say, my old life dominated with me at the center. My old life is done under the water. Coming back up again is like I've been raised with Jesus to new life. He says, baptize people. Do that. And when you do, do it in the name. Notice it's singular there. Not names. The name. The name of the one true God. And the name of the one true God, he says, is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. What we find out about God is that God is a triunity, is that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. What we mean when we say God is that God is the union, this love community that has existed for all of time, that has always existed And that draws us inside of that love community. You can trust God because God would give his all to draw you inside of that circle of love forever. And he'll be with you no matter what. So how do we respond? Here's our last thing. How do I know it's all going to be okay? How do you keep hope alive in your heart? You practice it. Hope and optimism are very are not the same thing, writes historian and theologian, biblical scholar N.T. Wright. He says this, the optimist looks at the world and feels good about the way it's going. Things are looking up. Everything is going to be all right. But hope, at least conceived within the Jewish and then early Christian world, was quite different. Hope could be and often was a dogged and deliberate choice when the world seemed dark. It depended not on a feeling about the way things were or the way things were moving, but on faith, faith in the one God. This God had made the world. This God had called Israel to be his people. Do you see the difference? We started today with my wife's question, is it all going to be okay? It's that question that's buzzing underneath of of our day-to-day living. But hope doesn't lie to us. It doesn't say, oh, you know what? Things are going to be great. Things are going in the right direction. It doesn't deceive us. It doesn't tell us that because sometimes, oftentimes, they're not. They're not going in the right direction. If you looked at it and you were honest, you'd say, wow, I, I can't see where this is going. There is uncertainty, and that's just the reality. Hope doesn't lie to us, but hope says God is at work, that your Creator makes promises and He keeps His promises, and He always keeps His promises. And so N.T. Wright goes on. He says, hope in this sense is not a feeling. It really isn't. If you came today and you weren't feeling hopeful, that's fine. Easter isn't about you drumming up a feeling within yourself. It's not. Hope is based on something much more firm than your feelings in any moment. And that's, a, that's good news, man. I need that news. He goes on to say, hope in this sense is not a feeling. It's a virtue. You have to practice it. 
like a difficult piece on the violin or a tricky shot in tennis. You practice the virtue of hope through worship and prayer, through invoking the one God, through reading and reimagining the scriptural story, and through consciously holding the unknown future within the unshakable divine promises. So what did I tell my friend that day as I sat across from her hospital bed and I looked into her desperately searching for any thread of hope eyes that day? What did I tell her? Like, can I say with a straight face what Julian of Norwich does, that all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well? Can I say that with a straight face? I can. And I did. But only because Jesus was raised. For my friend that day, for my wife's, is it all going to be okay? For my own heart, in those moments of deepest despair, it's in what Paul says in Romans 8. And that's what I've been reflecting on with my friend. It says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, that's a good question. Paul's ultimate answer, Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding, meaning he's praying for you. He's speaking to God the Father on behalf of you. He is interceding for you, for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then what Paul does is he jumps into the Old Testament to say, look, I'm not just making this up. This is what the whole rest of the Bible tells you too. And then he quotes from the Psalms as it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, this is his conclusion, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not the cancer diagnosis, not the mental health challenges, not the issues you're facing at work, not the challenges in your relationships. Nothing, Paul says, in all of creation can separate you from what you need most, and that is the love of God for you. God is for you. So we practice this hope. We tell our hearts in multiple ways every day. We hold on to the one who is forever holding on to us. I know, I know it's all going to be okay, ultimately, because hope is based in real history. I know it's going to be okay because I've lived that new horizon, and it makes all the difference in the moments of grieving and darkness. I believe that God is going to make everything that's sad come untrue, and I now have real purpose in God's mission. And I know it's all going to be okay because hope has a name. God is no mere force or power. Hope has come near to us in the person of Jesus so we can be with him forever. I have hope because Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that I can speak to you today because you have been raised that we could come before you today along with nearly two billion people around the globe and say our hope is rooted in real history, has a beautiful horizon, 
and is guaranteed by the one with the beautiful name of Jesus. For those who are struggling today, God, I ask that they would sense your hope, remembering again that the sense is not the thing. Even in those moments of feeling desperate and hopeless, God, we thank you that you are our hope regardless. And Father, we pray that we would hear your words again over us. Do not be afraid. All authority belongs to you. Therefore, go. And so we do, Lord. We go back into the world with full of purpose and full of your hope. Amen.